Listening Dog Media. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. In um, summers, we'd head off to the Caribbean and then I'd spend my time trekking around like dance halls and, and ragga sound systems and that kind of thing. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I'd always thought of dance music as being a bit Kevin and Perry-esque at that time, uh, rather naively. And then I was like, oh no, it can be for me too. Here I am, use my time, here we go. And with me now is a DJ and broadcaster with a celebrity following that includes Madonna, Giorgio Armani, Richard Branson and Jay Jagger. She's performed exclusively for them all. She was very charming, but you're lucky that someone's given you a stage. Bloody use it. My body was like full of electricity and I felt like I almost wasn't in charge of my limbs and I was facing the Queen. A radio show, the selector was described as the most cutting edge British music show out there. Hello, Samantha Hall, aka Goldie Rocks. Hello. <laughs> uh, where did the name Goldie Rocks come from, Sam? Oh, dearie me. It's the sort of thing that I feel like I've outgrown it now, now that I'm an ancient old bird. But um, an ex-boyfriend thought of it at uni. Um, and it was quite simply, I've got very long, still, waist-length hair. My hair hasn't changed since I was 10 years old. And um, we wanted to play on something to do with that because it was quite memorable and Goldie Locks and Goldie Rocks. But um yeah, I feel like I've outgrown it now, but I'm stuck with it. So me and the three bears carry on rocking on. <laughs> it's a good name. It's served you well. Yeah. <laughs> it's memorable. I mean, people always spell it wrong or put X's in or separate the words, but um, you just give them an eye roll and move on. <laughs> uh, let's go right back to the start then for you and talk about music in your life as a kid, Sam. Who were you into? Oh, so I had, even from a really, really young age, a really eclectic taste in music. I grew up in the home counties where there isn't really anything to do other than sort of pony riding and farming or emo rock. And at the time, I was really, really into my proper screamo emo rock. And there was a really healthy local scene with bands like Reuben and Hundred Reasons and Vex Red. So I spent most of my teenage years contemplating my belly button and wearing, you know, huge dragging trousers that went through puddles and just going to rock concerts. But then my parents owned a summer home in Jamaica. So in um, the summers, we'd head off to the Caribbean and then I'd spend my time trekking around like dance halls and, and ragga sound systems and that kind of thing and spent a lot of time surrounded by this incredible bass music um, and also like you know, lovely, love reggae. So it was two really different, uh, really strong influences, both which just, you know, set my heart on fire. Um, so yeah, I guess that gave me a really eclectic taste in music as, as a youngster. I want to hear more about Jamaica. Um, yeah. Which dance halls do you remember? What kind of bars <laughs> were you hanging out in? <laughs> Ones that I shouldn't have been at 15, but um, just loads of like little pop-up local sound system. So it was like local DJs and local singers, and it was all very um, 
I don't know, like a Caribbean version of the sort of warehouse party scene in Southeast London. It was all very hazy in every sense of the word, the experience of Jamaica. We sold the place when I was, I was 17, sadly, but um, oh, great memories. Where were you at age 17 then? What were you doing? So I was a bit of a awkward teenager, I think. I had my fair share of feeling misunderstood and, and you know, not fitting in with the local crowd and that kind of thing. And um, from age about 16, I think I knew I just desperately wanted to work in somehow live music, whether that was, I don't know, tearing ticket stubs at a local gig venue or becoming a radio presenter or even working for a record label. I just was desperate to immerse myself in that world. Now, my dad works in IT, my mum's, you know, a housewife. So it was by no means something I was surrounded by, but I was just determined to throw myself into it. So from age sort of, yeah, 16, I started doing volunteering and work experience absolutely anywhere that would have me. That was giving out stickers for the local radio station to TFM or trying to be sort of an assistant producer at the Eagle, like getting unsigned bands on for their sort of one, one hour music show across the whole, you know, the whole network. Um, and eventually that led to like, yeah, working in gig venues. And I did work experience for John Peel on Radio One. And it just, yeah, built up bit by bit. So I was surrounded by music a lot, even at that age. And by doing that work experience with John Peel, uh, that uh, leads me to ask about spending time in London, which I guess was a bit of a holy grail for you as a teenager. Mm. Magic London. Yeah, of course. It's, I mean, I started, yeah, like nipping up on the train. Um, we live close to London. So nipping on the train wherever I could, getting into as many gigs as I possibly could. Any type of music, I was just hungry for it. Um, I started writing for a brilliant website called Rock Feedback, um, who was a sister website to what is now Transgressive Records. And they gave me some great gig passes, chances to review live bands and to interview bands. And that was just an incredible way of cutting my teeth. But it meant I was sort of up and down on that blimmin commuter train like five days a week. And then I moved up to London when I was 18 to go to art school, to go to Goldsmiths in Southeast London. And that was a whole, a whole nother exciting raucous <laughs> chapter. Uh, before we get to that chapter, uh, tell me about John Peel. Um, how was that? Mm. What, what, what do you remember most, uh, most fondly about that time? Oh, I mean, you just felt like you were walking into this magic den of just, you know, such an iconic space, such an iconic man, a really kind, sweet-hearted, gentle man as well. Um, it was incredible. And I think the way he viewed music and the merit of what makes memorable and important and influential music has shaped the way I approach music journalism forever really striving for innovation, striving for something different and just not being afraid of having this wildly eclectic taste and not putting yourself in a box. And yeah, I think like that. I try to think like that every day. I'm guessing that um, because it's the same for most people that uh, your music tastes changed and were shaped by your time, in your case, at Goldsmiths. Oh yeah. I thought of myself very much as a sort of rock and roll girl. 
and live music and bands. And then as I, yeah, when I went to Goldsmiths, it was really the start of New Rave. So all around that area, Newcrest and Peckham, there were all these incredible wild warehouse parties. Errol Alkin and like Soul Wax doing these secret shows. And I was in the same year as the Claxons at, at university. So we would all bundle into people's like cellars in our, our, our funny little houses in Peckham and just put on these sweaty basement parties. And that really opened my eyes to like the world of dance music and, and electronic crossover music. And I was like, oh my God, this can be rock and roll. I suppose I'd always thought of dance music as being a bit Kevin and Perry-esque at that time, uh, rather naively. And then I was like, oh no, it can be for me too. And as with most people, it'll be students, other students around you that were helping to shape your music taste. Um, I think not necessarily students, but the experiences. I definitely came into dance music and electronic music as a party punter rather than as a music fan. And just that, the electricity of those parties, the flamboyance of the parties. And also I think the crossover between that rock and roll attitude and rock and roll sound into the music. It was, you know, a really unique time, the yeah, yeah, yeahs and the Tigra and sounds like that, where it was all sort of clashing and crossing over together that, yeah, that got me, got me excited about it. I should ask, uh, what were the Claxons like before they were famous? <laughs> Probably the same as when they were famous, <laughs> full of attitude, a bit of a chip on their shoulder, very judgmental. But we all were, we were like Ponzi art school kids, you know, <laughs> really, really snooty, thought we were the bee's knees, but um, it was fun. What course did you do? I did theatre, um, which is, yeah, which seems funny, but I was really avid theatre kid and, and, and Goldsmith's theatre course was very experimental and, and like very out there and quite social political. Um, and the wonderful thing about Goldsmith's, I can't sing their praises enough, is they're very about cross-pollination. So, you know, everyone's hanging out together, all the different creative courses. So you really take the influence and input of all these other mediums into your work. I was uh, on the university radio station there and I you know, did music for the local magazine there. And and yeah, so it was very, just one big bumble together. I nearly went to Goldsmiths, but uh, coming oh, from- did you? Yeah, from Shropshire, it was just too much for me. I, I felt like, I felt <laughs> lost. I have to, to say, when I, when I went to look round and I just thought, I don't think I could cope with being here in London. Mm, I was going to go to Exeter and Exeter was so beautiful and pretty and it was right by the sea. And my mum was like, oh yes, you know, nice red brick, beautiful university, go there, that will suit you. Um, and I just remember even thinking then, maybe that was a bit cocky of me, but I was like, oh, I'll just be a big fish in a small pond. And I was just so desperate. I was literally like this wild alley cat that was just gagging at the bit to be let loose in that city. And I remember going up for, yeah, for the open day and mum being like, why on earth would you want to come and live in Peckham? Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, like with the rats and the, the kebabs on the floor. And it was just, but it was just that rawness, that, that rawness and that possibility that anything could happen. And it did was just so exciting for me. 
Yeah, I often wonder, uh, looking back, uh, how life might have been different had I uh, gone to university in London or, or indeed Exeter or wherever. I, I ended up at Nottingham in the 90s. Uh, was part of a Britpop scene that um, mm. I, I look back on so fondly now. Uh, but I guess wherever you go, whenever you do it, those are the best days of your life. Well, it's funny, you know, because I'm a meditation teacher. I've just I sort of became a meditation teacher about a year ago, which complete opposite of what we're talking about now. But I try not to think like that. I always just think the present moment, focus on the present moment, contemplate and reflect. But, you know, the present moment is always the best moment. Okay, noted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, um, you did theatre. So was acting ever an option then? So I definitely considered acting and performance and specifically like theatre um, when I was a bit younger. But by the first year of my university, I was already putting club nights on as Goldie Rocks. And it sort of came clear that this route was taking off whether whether I liked it or not. You know, a lot of the shows that I started doing, especially festival shows, were on cabaret and alternative stages. So like at Reading Festival, they have the late night alternative stage stuff. And I would DJ between burlesque performers or going up to Edinburgh Fringe and DJing after parties for like Dieter Von Tees and stuff like that. So I think my appreciation and understanding of how showmanship works, <laughs> she says, doing jazz hands and, and performance and lighting and, and just taking a stage, you know, like taking that time, being like, here I am, use my time here we go, uh, being a proper ride. That's uh, been a big part of your life as a DJ, hasn't it? The performance. Yeah, I mean, I just love it. I just, you're lucky that someone's given you a stage, bloody use it. I know the real cool kids probably think that's a bit outlandish and out there, but I just can't help myself. Like if you're under a spotlight and you've got this roaring crowd in front of you, you want to engage, you want to be involved. You want it to be this cathartic experience that you're all releasing like this tension and having this raucous time together. Um, I mean, it has got me in trouble over the years. Like I am... Um I went crowd surfing and then damaged my knee and was in like a bloody cast for months and got silly at Burning Man and like jumped out and then broke my ankle. And so I've ended up in my fair share of scraps for that showmanship. But um, I think it's really important. You just, you know, you just got to give the people a good time. Do you remember your first ever paid gig? And if so, uh, how much did you get for it? Yeah, I do. So... I started DJing for free. I was just delighted that anyone would even let me be in charge of some CDJs. Um, it was at the Barfly in Camden and I got 50 quid for four hours and it was Queens of Noise. Oh, Queens of Noise like, gave like the Libertines some of their first gigs and stuff like that. But it was, yeah, it was very that electro clash crossover sound. So I think the Noisettes or Mystery Jets or someone like that were playing upstairs. And then I basically DJ in between the bands when people came down to get a pint and go for a wee. Yeah, I used to love that venue. Yeah. What is it now? It's like a taco shop or something. Yeah. So sad. Can you remember what you played that night? <laughs> oh, God. It would have been just really frenetic, frantic indie dance tunes. Like, La Tigre would have been up there. Yeah, yeah, yes. Pull Tiger Tail. That kind of sound. Jittery and fast and you could thrash around to it, um, but also quite sexy in a sort of <laughs> fishnetty way. Um, and you could still smoke in venues as well. So I'd get really nervous and just absolute 
definitely chain smoke throughout my set it's something to do with my hands because I got shy and then make myself feel really sick from getting through like 40 (laughs) cigarettes in two hours I think that uh, you've touched on something there that uh, a lot of DJs wouldn't ever uh, want to admit you know that there's that downtime (laughs) once something's on and you know what you're going to play next like what do you do (laughs) (laughs) I think when I first started yeah it was you know there was no technical skill in my DJing I was a selector and that's what I was doing and it was just like slam slam and I think that's one of the reasons maybe why the performance element started because it was like if I'm dancing around and thrashing around I'm not just standing there like looking at people feeling shy and you can sort of lose yourself in the character of of Goldie Rocks of this rock chick bonkers performer rather than just being Sam twiddling her thumbs. So how did things escalate from there then? I assume that at that time you probably had a, a real job too did you? Well, Goldie Rock started when I was 19. So I was at uni, which was great because, you know, I mean, not great for my studies or my lectures because I'd be off DJing and then, you know, traipse in at four in the morning and then have a lecture at 9am or whatever. But um, it was just great for me giving me that support net. And it means I could say yes to everything because you had your student loan to pay for you to get to gigs. Um, I think the really tough bit was straight out of uni because Goldie Rocks was actually quite successful by then. I mean, I'd started doing international dates when I was at uni. I had an agent and on paper, it looked like I was doing really well, but ultimately I wasn't making enough money to pay my rent and live well, and feed myself in London, which is obviously crazy expensive, um, even then. So I would do waitressing jobs on the side and I'd do like the little bit of, I don't know, paid PA work here and there. And it was always a real struggle and a balance, but I think it just made me want it even more. And I'd work in really crap places. I remember that. Someone's like, why don't you just get a nice job, like doing the reception at Soho House or something like that? And I was like, because I don't want anyone knowing that I'm not acing it yet because I was worried it would affect people booking gigs. So I'd get waitressing jobs in the crappest places where I thought no one would possibly ever come in, you know, big chain pizza places and stuff like that. (laughs) And I'd always, always smell like garlic bros. (laughs) Uh, When was the tipping point then? So I think two key moments for me. The first is Toby from Transgressive Records is like, we're doing a secret after party at Glastonbury. Do you want to come down? And I was like, uh, hell yes. And so I DJed this after party and I don't know, I still, it was so hazy. It was basic. I think it was just off site, but everyone was at this bloody party. Kira Knightley, Kate Moss, the Chemical Brothers DJed, I DJed and the Magic Numbers played. Anyway, so I did this set and it was only like an hour and a half, but I bloody went for it. I threw my soul into that set and straight off stage, someone from MTV came and was like, hi, I'm from MTV. I'm in charge of their events. I want you to DJ the MTV European Music Video Awards (laughs) in Lisbon next month. And I was like, yes, that is what I want to do. I will be there. And that really, I think, was just the catapult you know, right place, right time. And I went and I DJed there and like all of the guests from MTV were in the audience. So Justin Timberlake and Madonna, and it was just, you know, very surreal and very bonkers. And the Ed Banger crew were DJing as well. And I made friends with them and then went off to Paris to DJ with them and Justice and, and all of that jazz. And then the second was getting 
in the selector because I think every music journal worth their salt, they wanted, they wanted that John Peel slot. They wanted that Radio 1 slot. And they were just saying to me, it's like, you need more. As we call it in the biz, air miles. You need to be on air more. You need to practice that craft of just doing links and the mechanics of the desk and stuff like that. And my agent rang me up and she's like, look, there's this radio show. It's made by the British Council. It's been going for a couple of years, but it's lost its way a bit. We want someone young to come in to give it this energy injection and just to make it current. I don't think you'll want to do it for a long time, but it's definitely worth it. And it means you're going to be able to pay your rent, which which is great. So I could give up the waitressing and I was like, yeah, 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 I'll give it a go. And then it just turned into this incredible beast. And yeah, I, I did the selector for 10 years. I left last year after 10 years, but it was, it was incredible. And uh, do you have a preference, radio DJing or DJing out? Mm, see, I, I think that's really interesting. People ask me that a lot. They're two completely different mediums for me and different experiences. And I think I'll go a bit bonkers if I didn't have one or the other. I think just doing radio, I just, I crave the stage. Like right now, you know, in these times of COVID and no music and, and, and no festivals, I dream about it, dream about performing, dreaming about being in sweaty crowds and, and watching live music and live DJs. But radio is so gorgeous and intimate. And if I DJed like just DJed, I'd go absolutely insane. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'd be in an asylum by now, I think. Are you ready, Sam, for your five questions? Yeah, go on. All right, so the idea is that I will dip into this box here and pull out five questions at random from 45 that are in the box, all right? Got you. Okay. I'm really nervous. I feel like like I'm a mastermind or something. Because we're obviously having to do this remotely. You need to just say when and I'll dip in and and pull out one of them. (laughs) And go. Okay. Uh, Goldie Rocks, what is your biggest and or proudest DJ moment? Okay, that is DJing the opening ceremony of the Paralympic Games for London 2012. Probably the most surreal experience of my life. I DJed in the middle straight after uh, Orbital (laughs) and um, it was for the athletes marching in and we got to curate the whole soundtrack, so 90 minutes. um, And I just picked as many underground British artists as I could so they got lovely PRS money and it was bonkers. 85,000 people in the stadium and millions watching at home. And my dressing room was next to Stephen Hawking. Wow. Did you get to meet him? Um, No, I wasn't allowed. (laughs) But I did meet Ian McKellen. (laughs) Tell me. I did meet Ian McKellen, who was lovely. A decent second best. Uh, (laughs) Tell me now, just transport yourself back to that moment and that set, what you felt like you were experiencing, what you could see, if you can remember the sensation. Can you describe it? Just like my body was like full of electricity that literally all of me felt wired and I felt like I almost wasn't in charge of my limbs and I was facing the queen. So you could see, I mean, it's so, that stadium is so huge, but you could see the box because it was all lit up and had all the red regalia on it and stuff. So I knew the queen was there. And I remember just thinking, got to be good for the queen, got to be good for the queen. <laughs> and there were huge screens all around the arena, which were broadcasting my face. So that was very surreal because you kept glancing up and you're like, oh God, there I am. And you're like, right, well, don't watch myself do it. That's just weird and arrogant. So just keep going, keep going because you never know when the camera's going to be on you. And you'll never get that moment again. 
you know, that that is never, even if I were to play in a huge stage, like somewhere like Glastonbury or, or something like that, that, that unique time, London 2012, it would never, ever happen again. So just enjoy it. So uh, when I opened up by saying that you've got fans in Madonna and Richard Branson and Jay Jagger, I wasn't expecting you to say you played a live set for the Queen. <laughs> I don't think she was there just for me, babe. <laughs> However much I'd like to say. Oh, babe, don't put yourself there. Oh, babe, oh, babe. <laughs> uh, what did you open and what did you close with? Do you remember? Oh, God, I can't remember. Oh, no, I remember we closed with David Bowie Heroes. Um, because you know it was the athletes parade, and we wanted something British, and we wanted something really iconic, and I didn't want anything big and obvious. I mean, I suppose that Heroes is quite big and obvious, but I wanted something just a bit edgy, you know, some something that symbolises open-mindedness and experimentation. So I remember we closed with that, but I can't remember. Maybe Galvanize. Maybe we opened with Galvanize. It was something really punchy, something like grab your attention, energy, pow, something they could march to. When you say we, was there a, a big selection process? Yeah. So it was me and um, a DJ called DJ Waldy and a DJ called Excalibur who used to do stuff on BBC One Extra. Um, so we were sort of like the three pillars, the three DJs for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know how they picked me. I just got the call and I was delighted. <laughs> How well do you plan your sets? Oh, so that completely depends on what I'm doing and what kind of party it is. For big festival shows, which is really my favorite, my favorite kind of DJing, if it's going to be a big stage, you know, you're talking like several thousand people and you've got a short set, like an hour, then I plan it pretty meticulously because I want it to be tight and punchy and energy, energy, energy. And I want people to get their money's worth when it's something like a private party or, you know, a celeb event. I'm a bit more freestyle just because you've got to be reading the room and interacting. And there's no point in having this beautifully planned, perfectly practiced set if actually no one's dancing and enjoying it. Your whole job as a DJ is to make people dance. So yeah. Do you prefer the reading of the room? The thing with corporates and privates and like the big celeb parties is it all sounds very glamorous on paper. People love to write about it in magazines, but they can actually be quite boring because people want to listen to the same stuff they've always wanted to listen to. It's, you know, it's the, the stuff that people know that people want to dance to or the current like hot track or whatever. Whereas I find, I don't know, I love I, playing to smaller audiences makes me more nervous than playing to big audiences where you can see the white people's eyes, that puts me on edge. I like it to be a show. I like there to be physical distance between me and the audience. And it's more, yeah, punter and performer. I'm quite surprised by that. I thought you'd like the whites of the eyes because you would react accordingly. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm good at reading the room and I think I'm good at interpreting it. But then I sort of take on the role of, oh, we're all at the party together. I suppose it's whose party is, right? Yeah. Uh, Who's been your favourite to do as a celebrity? As a private thing. Yeah. Um, I, oh yeah, the Google crowd. The Google crowd, Google and all the brilliant, big, beautiful brains of Google throw the most cracking parties. And I've DJed for them a lot all over the world. And the audiences there are very eclectic. You could have a prime minister or a president of a country or or some huge celebrity or like, yeah. And I did an amazing beach party for them in Sicily where, oh my God, the audience. I don't think I've ever been anywhere with that many important people in, in, in one party, but it was great fun. Who was there? 
Gloria Steinman, astronauts, athletes, <laughs> um, royalty, like lots of very, very established people. Crazy thinking back to those times giving out stickers for a local radio station, hey? <laughs> uh, right, Sam, back to the box and you say when. Okay. Rummage, rummage, rummage. Go. What's the worst thing about being a DJ? The worst thing about being a DJ is probably actually the same thing as the best thing, like the travel. You know, you get to travel the world and go to all these incredible far-flung places. But that also does mean you become exhausted and fatigued and you're away from your loved ones a lot and you get no routine and, and your sleep patterns are all buggered and stuff. And that as it's, uh, whenever people used to say that, I'm like, oh my God, you're so spoiled. Like, why can't you just enjoy it? But it does. It really grates and it really, really wears you down. And if you reach a certain level of fatigue, which after 15 years of doing it, I definitely did. You just start to lose your spark and the whole electricity and the reason and purpose why you started it in the beginning. So I do think it's really important DJs learn to have balance in their life and don't see like well-being as some sort of naff woo-woo thing. And just, yeah, about balance and calm and, and, and giving yourself rest and peace as well as the fun of being out there. Uh, you're probably just about old enough to uh, have humped around record boxes too, aren't you? Uh, as opposed to a memory stick in each pocket. Yeah, I did vinyl for a bit, but I'm just not. I'm just going to lay it down. I listen to vinyl at home, but DJing vinyl is hard. I'm five foot four, so lugging around a massive <laughs> heavy bag as well. It's not great for one's back. Um, but I was definitely the CDJ girl and I would have like packets and packets of these bloody heavy CDJs that get covered in mud and crap and get scratched at festivals and stuff. Where's the craziest place you've DJed? Mm. Well, it depends your definition of crazy. I would say, I was about to say Kazakhstan because I DJed in this ex-Soviet like bunker club and it was underground and it was just full of these green lasers. And I came out at five in the morning and my eyes started stinging and I was like, what's going on? And they're like, oh no, that's your eyeballs trying to freeze over because it was minus 30 degrees Celsius outside. It was so cold and so weird and so surreal. And I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. What am I doing? Um, but actually, the probably right answer for that is Libya. So I was the first culture correspondent to go to Libya after the fall of Gaddafi. I went there with the British Council of my then radio show, The Selector. And um, we did a party and we spoke to the youth form of Tripoli about how to make innovative radio because they'd had no media training, no broadcast experience. Women weren't really allowed to study media. So it was a really important role, something I really took seriously. But I don't think I realized actually how dangerous it was. I mean, I was basically going into a war zone um, and outside, you know, the, the hotel where we were doing this show, there were like soldiers with machine guns in case someone tried to kidnap me. And I didn't realize until I was actually in the space. I'm like, oh my God, this is really dangerous. Like, what am I suggesting? How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. It was it was validation. And you just think, I just did that and I did it well. And I'm going to be able to pay my rent with that money. That's it's an amazing feeling. Actually getting paid to do something you really, really love and you think you're good at. That's what anyone wants in life really, isn't it? Back to the box. You say when. Mm-hmm. And when. Uh, it's another worst one. Uh, <laughs> what's been your worst, cringiest moment behind the decks? Oh, God. 
I'm not going to say that. <laughs> so, um, no. Well, like, you know, when I was when I was young, I speak like I'm 80 years old. I'm in my mid-30s. But I was a rock and roll girl. I, and I loved it. And I loved the rock and roll antics. And I loved the rock and roll dream. And I wanted to party harder than all the boys and anyone I'd met to sort of prove myself. And I probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. And I used to have a bottle of Jack Daniels as my rider. And sometimes I would just get paralytic, you know, like I'd guzzle this this bottle of Jack Daniels and pretty much almost drink the whole thing throughout a set. And I remember at Reading just like puking over the side of the stage, basically. And oh, and then I fell down a hole <laughs> in the middle of my set. I basically fell off the stage down a hole and had to like figure out how to climb up the roster because it wasn't even like gracefully over the stage in front of the audience. It was literally like underneath the bloody stage. But, um, oh God, Reading Festival though, so you can sort of get away with it. Well, so I've learned my lesson since then. Yeah, what's on your rider these days? Oh, something more dignified. <laughs> like, the Jack Daniels is gone. Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big rum girl. I love my rum. So yeah, a bottle of really nice Caribbean rum, like a good Havana Club or um, Appleton's or something like that. And um, yeah, Diet Coke and, and sometimes some bubbles and stuff like that. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, okay, back to the box. And <laughs> uh, your next fourth question. Yeah, and go. How did your best moment as a DJ make you feel? Like validated. And that sounds... Oh, that's oh, poor little Sam. You need validation from the work, but it did. I came from the countryside, and no, you know, where where I grew up, no one did stuff like music or or performance. We sort of admired it from afar, and actually, to be like, yeah, man, like this is real. I'm really doing it. You even when I had successful gigs or successful radio shows and gigs, you sort of thought maybe somehow someone's going to find me out eventually. They're going to find me out that I'm, I shouldn't really be here and, and someone else should have it. Especially being a woman, times have really changed now. Thank goodness. And, you know, all hail St. Annie for breaking that glass ceiling. But not many girls were doing it. Or if they did, you were like kind of like weird side trance DJs that were out there. There weren't many women broadcasters, new music broadcasters. There weren't many female DJs. So yeah, it was it was validation. And when and where was that, Sam? <sighs> Probably like, yeah, the big festival shows that I first started doing just before bands, yeah, artists like Justice or the Chemical Brothers or, or I warmed up for Soul Wax in Lisbon and that was incredible as well. Only female on the whole lineup, that kind of thing. And you just think, I just did that and I did it well and I'm going to be able to pay my rent with that money. That's it's an amazing feeling. Actually getting paid to do something you really, really love and you think you're good at. That's what anyone wants in life, really, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. One last question from the box now, then. This is your fifth and final question from the box. So you say when? Uh, rummage, rummage, rummage. Go. Name two unlikely songs that actually work great together. Mm. So do you mean in the sense that they're mixed together or they just sound really cool? I suppose it's about the second song being unexpected. Mm. So I... Like, if you're being a sort of purist house DJ, because I do DJ a lot of dance music now, then you could go for something that's got a, a snappy sample. But as a festival girl, as a festival DJ, I love just having really eclectic, clashing sounds and energies because it whips you up into surprise. And I think 
when you're listening to music all day and all night at a festival, having something that there's these sudden energy changes, it whips people up into a frenzy and just makes people feel fresh. It's like a gear change. So something unexpected, like, I don't know if I was playing like a sort of really eclectic techno, like heavy house techno set, then throwing something in really tarty at the end, like you spin me round, round, baby, right, round, or something like that at the side that no one would expect. Something that makes you not not afraid of being the cool kid, you know, just being silly and fun and, and colourful. Uh, did it take a, a while to get to that point, perhaps? Oh, massively, because you, you want to be cool, so you've got to be like, look, I can play the most underground music ever. Look how cool I am. I'm so arty. And then actually being brave enough and being like, no, let's be silly. Let's be bold. Like... Let's just have a fun time and then playing the odd silly song as well. So I'd say something like, yeah, a proper bottom shaker, something really deep and cool and, and cutting edge and arty and then something clashing and silly and retro. Do you want a name too? <laughs> I was trying to a skirt around that, wasn't I? I was like, yeah. Um, so my current favorite bottom shaker at the moment is like, this track called Let It Go by the Martinez Brothers with Mark E. Basie. It's just so good and addictive. It's been out for months now, but I'm just, I'm really into it. And then after, I don't know, something like Get It On or something, something you would not expect, just something soulful and a complete change that people sing along to. I always think it's good to have like a bopper, a bottom shaker, and then an anthem. <laughs> I love your language. And uh, just a few loose ends now, Sam. Do you have a, a favourite sequence of three or even five songs? Uh, no, not not specifically. And to be honest, it's been such a long time because I haven't DJed out for almost a year now. How sad is that? Like um, the last big, big gig I did was the International Women's Day March in front of Parliament Square on the 8th of March last year. And that was my last big show. Can I even remember how to DJ anymore? <laughs> give, give, give me a great three in a row. Okay. So, oh gosh. Do you know a track I absolutely love at the moment? Robin, Ever Again, the Soul Wax remix. That is an absolute corker. The Let It Go track that I've already said. Oh yeah. And Heaven by Ben Westbeach and Andrea Triana, The Vision. That's their new thing. Ben Westbeach is just, oh, my favorite breach. He just makes these beautiful house tracks with lovely 90s piano samples and they just rise and rise and build and build, but not in a way that's like heavy and oppressive, just really joyful, soul-affirming house music, which is the kind of music, kind of dance music that I like to play. I love anything with a sort of Motown-style vocal on it, something that's soul-affirming that you can warble at the pitch of your lungs. That's that's my kind of house. Excellent. Favourite gear, Sam? What are your preferred decks, mixers, speakers, headphones? Favourite gear. So <laughs> um, I'm a bit boring. I'm just the straight-up pioneer, I'm afraid. Yeah, pioneer CDJs, um, a DGM. I've just bought a new one. What is it? DGM 900. Anything that's got a lovely link cable so your CDJs can read each other with your USBs. And then I use, yeah, Sennheiser headphones. Although, to be honest, they always get tangled in my hair. You know, every time I go to a DJ shop, I'm like, have you got anything? And they're like, no, this is what you want. And I'm like, oh, cool. And I get talked into it. And the sound quality is great. But yeah, they melt my hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sam, I, I need to ask you about 
And you can answer briefly just a line on each of these, the celebrity following. Madonna. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, what, how? <laughs> so I got asked to, she was doing a pri- get a private party at the O2 Arena, as you do. Just, you know, it was for something like 30 people at O2 Arena. And it was like the official sort of after party. She threw this party on a boat and we sailed up the Thames. And yeah, it was, it was, um, she was very charming, but quite, uh, as you would expect, quite astute, not super friendly, but charming. Um, and it was the time she was going out with that Jesus guy and he uh-huh. was gorgeous, <laughs> absolutely gorgeous, like a Raphaelite painting or something. But she was um, encouraging and I was delighted, delighted to be there. Do you play a, a Madonna song in a set when you're playing for Madonna? I didn't know. I wouldn't dare. I'd be worried she'd throw me overboard or something. <laughs> uh, what about uh, Giorgio Armani? Yeah, so that was in Monaco. That was in, at the Monaco Grand Prix. He threw a big party on his yacht, yeah, there. And just as you sort of expect, I think fashion people are quite like that. They don't seem to walk. They just sort of levitate in a very glamorous way, rosé in hand, all around the boats. Um, Monaco is always bonkers. The boats are crazy and it's just so opulent and decadent and and you feel like you're in a film but you just got to embrace all of the the silliness and and the frivolity of it i would love to be able to say monaco's always bonkers um <laughs> and what about um jay jagger oh she's so cool she's so cool and fun that was an ibiza um she is my kind of girl i've done loads of stuff for the the rolling stones uh, family, sort of, as it were, through the years. Um, they did a takeover, the Rolling Stones did a takeover of Carnaby Street for their Christmas lights. And I basically turned them, turned the Christmas lights on and, and did a DJ set. And um, she heard of me, or I don't know how, through that. And then, yeah, did some parties for her in Ibiza. I aspire to be, to be something like that. Just cool, laid back. You know, you're an older gal, but you've still got the rock and roll spirit, but you're a bit of a hippie as well. I would say you're not far off at all, Sam. Oh, thanks, babe. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure, babe. <laughs> right, now, this is my last question for you. Uh, there's some kind of uh, non-specific catastrophic event where there's some bizarre caveat where you have to play the last three records before a global dance for... <sighs> okay, so... Which records, which last three records would they be? That is, I'm doing the politician thing. That is a brilliant question to try and give me more time. It would have to be something, not just my favourite, because you're playing to like the whole world. So this is really important. I think something that is uplifting and a message of joy, peace and love, but also something that's feel good because you've got to play to the oldies and the babies and everyone. So something that you would have like, you know, Sunday, the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, like a feel good sort of happy thing. Oh God. Okay. Three tracks, three tracks. So Mm -hmm. Bob Marley would be in there because I just love him. Um, Which Bob Marley would you give? No, I know. <laughs> Could you be loved or iron, lion's iron, something like that. Like yeah. just something that you can sing along to and wail along to, but it's ultimately a message of unity and it's a good bopper. See, bopper, bottom shaker anthem. <laughs> Great choice. So we need a bottom shaker. Something like 
chic, Nile Rodgers, that kind of thing. Again, something people can sing along to. It's a message of unity, but you can get a bit more shaky. I wouldn't want to play anything really mega dancey because this is for the whole world. So it's very important you're being inclusive. So something like everybody dance or or good times, something like that. Yeah. A good, yeah, yeah. Maybe a bit of a remix if we were going to go quite dancey. Okay. Or something disco Nothing to scare anyone. Like Boogie Wonderland. Oh my God, I love Boogie Wonderland. Nothing too scary because it's the end of the world. So um, yeah, oh, disco. Who doesn't love disco? And then we could have hundreds of disco balls and it'll be incredible. And then we would finish with an anthem. And this is basically saying like, goodbye world. There's not going to be any more music. So it has to be something we can sing along to. You know, the drunk people at the weddings, when they always throw their arms around each other and like sway from side to side. But you don't want anything mega cheesy and crap because that would just be gutting, wouldn't it? No New York, New York or any of that bollocks. So maybe, oh God, the pressure. Probably be David Bowie, you know? what I? Oh my God, I've already done it. What I did at the Paralympic Games, it'll probably be heroes. Yeah. You know, we can be heroes, guys. The world's going to end, but we will be surviving. I could uh, I could live with going to Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> also, wouldn't it be lovely if he just sort of came out the clouds and was like, hey, kids, beam you up. Come join the party. And like Andy Warhol's at the top just waving and everyone's like, Woo, off we go. <laughs> uh, Sam, you've been awesome. Thank you so, so much. Oh, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. It's so nice to chat to someone. <laughs> uh, Sam Hall, Samantha Hall, Goldie Rocks. That was How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>